0: All right, open up your Bible to Colossians. Again, that's right after Philippians. Uh, If you learn the, I don't know if it's like the little mnemonic phrase, but the General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians is a very short book. Um, It's a short letter. It's written by Paul. Uh, And it is not a typical theological treatise in the same way that many of uh, Paul's other writings are. But it contains immense theological truths in it. And there's a lot of things that we'll be going through in the coming weeks. And, and Chris will pick up next week in verse 3. Um, but we're going to be looking at the opening, the greeting. And you're thinking, how in the world is he going to preach on two verses of a greeting? Well, I'm going to show you. Um, so, I don't have my little clock up here. I'm using my phone, so if I forget to check it, it gets to be like 11.15, 11.30, just throw something And I'll wrap it up, Um, but as far as this, so I think many of us, when we get to like the opening of a book, uh, we kind of treat it like a genealogy. We're like, where's the meat, right? And even if you look in a lot of uh, theology books or um, you know commentaries, they actually skip right over this. They'll they'll go directly into verse three or to verse five, um, and they skip over this opening greeting. And I find that very interesting because there's so much here that Paul said that he intended for his original hearers to know and also, it's Scripture. This is not, you know, the the greetings or again, genealogies or you know places, namings, all that. It's not just there for any reason. It's there because God intended it to be. And it's been preserved in Scripture through all these centuries for a very specific reason. And so let's maybe see what God has for us in these two verses, okay? We don't want to miss what's there, these, these deep theological truths that Paul just gives in these briefest, these briefest of, of verses here, these two sentences that he gives. So let's figure it out. Some of our spiritual ancestors, the Puritans, uh, and then the Congregationalists after them, they, w- <laughs> they, they would preach for hours. Um, literally, they would preach for hours, and they would go literally word by word, verse by verse, And so you might actually hear a whole sermon, and I'm not not exaggerating here, maybe just a little, but not much. Um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, boom, two-hour sermon. And so they would have these very lengthy sermons because they wanted to get all of the meat off the bone, if it were, okay? But they were firmly, firmly embedded in the belief, just like Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is what? Profitable for teaching, Right. So it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training. And so we want to adhere to that. And so we're not going to skip over these first two verses, and we're going to look at what Paul is actually trying to tell these readers at Colossae. Now, again, in the relatively few verses, we have a lot of deeply, deeply rich theological truths that we can explore. And that's what we're going to do here. Um, Now, before we go into, into the actual scripture here, Um, again, we don't want to pass over it, so I'm encouraging you now. Take some notes, write some things down, go and look up afterwards, all right? Take some time to actually explore and learn because I think you're going to find that Paul had a lot to say just, again, in these small verses. So let's read Scripture, starting in verse 1, Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. There's so much there. One of the benefits that I have of getting to write the sermon and research is just the blessing of the learning. What I'm going to talk about today is a fraction of what I've gotten to learn. So that's my blessing, but I hope your blessing is understanding the full length here. So, the Colossians was written around 59 to 61 A.D. You're saying, Tony, how do we know that? Well, there was a massive earthquake in the, er- in the region, in the area, um, which is modern-day Turkey, and Colossae was destroyed. It was utterly destroyed. There were some small huts and, you know, out little you know, buildings that were left, but um, by the 5th century, it was all but abandoned. So we know that this earthquake happened in 61 A.D., and so surely Paul would have mentioned it you know, when he was writing to them. Hey, I know there's only a few of you left because of the earthquake, but no, he's talking to the people at Colossae, and he makes no mention of it. So we know it was written approximately this time. Again, uh, Colossae was in uh, Phrygia, which is, or Phrygia, I don't know, Um, modern-day Turkey. So kind of picture in your head, it's in modern-day Turkey. Um, and the population was primarily Gentile, but around 223 B.C., there was a large contingent uh, of Jews that came in and settled in the area, and there's a reason behind that. We don't have time to go into it. But, so it was, it was a, a pr- pretty solid mix of Gentiles and Jews. Now, this mix of Gentile culture, Jew and Gentile culture, led to what we call syncretism, which is a blending together of two unlike things, Okay. And it created an amalgamation of different religions and philosophical thought. Paul is going to go on to address this in Colossians, and that's one of the primary reasons for the letter. Um, It's a mix of Jewish legalism and pagan mysticism, okay? And this would become what is called the Colossian heresy or the precursor to Gnosticism, all right? Um, You can look up Gnosticism. Um, We will certainly, Chris will almost certainly address it um, in future sermons but again uh, that's something for you to go and to look up and hopefully that'll help you understand more the letter. Um, Just like with any letter just like with any book in the Bible there's always background, all right? We can certainly take it at face value and there's nothing wrong with that but it really helps to know the history and to understand the context of it. Paul was not the founder of the church at Colossae um, and he had never actually been there. He'd never been there up to this point. Uh, Epaphras is the likely founder. He probably heard Paul preaching in Ephesus, and then had gone back home and, you know, brought the gospel to Colossae and started a church there. Uh, we actually don't know too much about Epaphras. Um, we just know that he's a co-worker, that uh, Paul considers him a friend. Um, and him being mentioned as a co-worker uh, is actually very interesting. Um, at this point in Paul's, in Paul's ministry, he wasn't doing this much. So Epaphras must have been a very strong friend um, and actually someone very well known in Colossae for Paul to do that, um, to give that kind of endorsement. Paul acknowledges that the church at Colossae uh, is a group of true believers, all right? This is important for him. Um, sometimes, though, Paul does omit the term ecclesia in, in Greek meaning, you know, congregation, body, church. Um, when speaking to a broad audience. We know that this letter was supposed to go to multiple places, and so he was speaking broadly. But he does acknowledge that they are believers. He's not just writing, uh, as you could say, an evangelistic letter, okay? And then um, the letter specifically addresses Colossae, though, and does deal primarily with, again, this Colossian heresy, as we'll see in the coming weeks. Now, when Paul opens up, he says... um, you know, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ. So when he uses this word, it's, it's hagioi, saints. And he's using it to understand and to, to, and to convey to the people that they are the true church. So this word is significant. It's not, it's not, you know, we read saints and it's like, oh, saints, and we move on. But what Paul is conveying here is, no, I am acknowledging you. I am the Apostle Paul with all my credentials in history, very uh, well known up to this point, and saying, you actually are true believers, and I'm acknowledging you in this. So this Hagioi, this saints that he uses is very significant, and, and it would have been so well received by them, right? Here's this group of people in a far off place, in this, sou- in this town, in this city, what was once thriving, and, he, and, and the Apostle Paul is calling us, you know, saints and true believers. He's, he's counting us, even, you know, amongst himself, um, Paul always uses this distinctive word to refer to true believers. He's not the originator, um, but he always uses it to refer to true believers. Um, the believers are entitled to every promise in Scripture. This is something that would have been understood. This is not that every promise in Scripture is owed to me or to you, right? Um, something that was promised to somebody is not ours, but it is Christ's. So all of the great promises in Scripture belong to Christ. And because we are co-heirs with him, we share in those, but they don't belong to us. It's important to remember that. Um, He shares those out of the goodness of himself. So again, this idea of co-heir, you can read about that in Romans and Ephesians, Um, this idea that we share in this with him. So write that one down, Hagioi, saints. Paul uses this to address those people. Faithful brothers, in this context, uh, can also mean brothers and sisters. So the Greek is a little bit vague here. Um, it could mean both. In in some translations, we'll say brothers and sisters, and some will just say brothers, and that's okay. It's understood here when it's just the brothers. And any particular translation, the Greek would allow for it to be broadly. So the way that we speak, you know, we we sometimes say man, but we mean all of humanity. It's the same way here. Okay, so um, Paul is addressing. All of the believers, the brothers and the sisters in this place, um, but he's also in this in this very short phrase, this this brothers and this brothers and sisters in Christ. He's uniting our physical selves with Christ. We are brothers and sisters with Christ, right? It's not just a nice thing to say. It's not just you know a, a silly you know uh, title you know or letters behind your name. No, it's, it's something different. Paul is saying, we are united, and I'm acknowledging that you are this kind of believer, that you are united with Christ. And this is so significant. Remember, Paul had never met these people. He'd never been there. He didn't know them, but he knew from Epaphras that these were true brothers and sisters. So really important there. Um, he's proving here, too, that the church is not bound to national, social, racial, or any other anthropological prerequisites. He's saying, you are saints, you are brothers, you are the church. Your small little local body there is part of the grand body of Christ. And he's saying all this already. We're, we're not even a dozen words into this book. And there's all this idea that Paul is conveying to these people, which again would have been important, right? You're, you live in a place that's far, um, is certainly not the, the center of, you know, at that point, what was Christianity, But Paul's saying, you're with us, we're there. I'm with you, you're with me, we're all with Christ. And so he's going out of his way to express this kindness to them. And then perhaps more than any other letter in the New Testament, and and certainly not exclusively, but perhaps more than another, um, you know, Paul wants to convey here that there's a unique kind of fellowship in the church. He's going to go on to elaborate on this and he's, he's going to go on to explain as, as we go through the book of Colossians that there is a unique kind of relationship that Christians have, not just with Christ, but with each other, right? We all have that common denominator. Some of us in here don't know each other. We see each other, we say hi. Some of us are great friends. But there's a unique fellowship that we have with each other in Christ and Paul really wants to express that. He really wants to go on And let us know that. All right. So here's where I want to go today. So if you look in the second verse there, Paul says, To the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. I want to focus on grace and peace. These are really broad ideas that Paul is conveying. And it's interesting that Paul uses these together grace and peace grace and peace, grace and peace. He actually does this a lot. So what is Paul trying to get across here? Why in that little short sentence, that little briefest of statements, grace and peace to you from God our Father? There's so much there to unpack, and let's unpack a little bit of it today. All right, guys, it's only 1045. We're fine. All right. So let's talk about grace a little bit. So in his opening, Paul uses for the word here, charis. Now, a lot of you guys have heard that. Is anybody in here named charis? All right, it was a popular name for a while. Everybody's name and everybody cares. That's fine. Um, but it means grace or a kindness, okay? And this is interesting that Paul would use this word, caris instead of the traditional Hellenistic, meaning Greek, offering that was given. So in the same way that we say, you know, hey, what's up? Or hi, or, you know, something like this, um, they would use the word, uh, they would use the word kierin. Right, so similar, right, charis, they would say kieran, which just it simply means greeting, like, hey. Paul could have used this. He could have said, hey, right, but he wanted to convey this idea of kindness and grace. He wanted to push this idea that there is a, there is a difference here in the way we interact. And so it's not just this informal, hey, how you doing, this, you know, standard kind of legal term almost, No, he's saying there is more to this, and you have this in God. and He's going to unpack that quite a bit. Grace uh, is a communicable attribute of God. I think we've talked about this in the past. Um, Certainly in in my class we have. But God shares this with us. Communicable means he shares it with us. Now, grace is something that is uniquely God's, but it means that we can express it. We can, we can receive this grace from him, and then we have the ability, the capacity as his creatures to then express this grace, and that looks a whole, whole lot of different ways, really. But one of the ways we're seeing here, again, even in this, is Paul is expressing grace to these readers. He's not being formal with them. He's not being removed from them. He's talking to them as if he was there, and if he was there, he would certainly hug their neck, right, and greet them in a very familiar way. So this is a familiar term. Um, So we have this with us. So again, Paul is giving a blessing here. When he says grace and peace to you, it's a blessing. It's not just this formality. It's not just this, oh, it's another one of Paul's openings. No, no, it's a blessing. And read it that way, right? And because this is scripture, this is a blessing for us. This is a blessing that we get to receive right from God, Grace, of course, is mercy shown to those that don't deserve it. We've been over this so many times in so many passages and so many verses, but it bears repeating because it's so important. Grace is not owed. Grace is a kindness given, right? So we just talked about it. What does grace mean? Kindness, mercy, and it's given to us through God, but it's not that it's owed to us. Grace is never obligatory. Just because God is grace does not mean it's owed to anybody. It's important to remember that it is freely given through Christ, right? It's not yours for the taking. It's his for the giving, right? God does not do kind things simply because he must, right? He does kind things because he is kind, he is merciful. He is grace. Those things are not owed to anybody. And Paul is saying here, you get to partake in this. So this kind of grace, this kind of mercy to you. It's more than just a, it's more than just a you know, a, how are you doing? But again, we need to understand grace apart from works or deeds. We need to understand that we can't do anything worthy of it. If you read in Isaiah chapter 64, he uses the phrase that anything that we do, any attempt at, any attempt at goodness, any attempt at uh, greatness is like filthy rags. And, and that's the kindest way I can say that word because the literal translation is, is foul. He's saying that anything that we do to try to earn this, to try to be good apart from God, is just foul. It's wrong. It's not going to work. Right? It smells. It stinks. It is an offense to God. But grace is freely given. You can't earn it. Right? It's, again, not yours for the taking. It's his for the giving. So receive it joyfully. There's no favoritism with God. Grace is an interesting thing because God chooses to whom he will give. But it's freely given. We... Read in Acts, there's the there's the, it's actually a long passage in Acts chapter ten, and you can you can go back and read it. But Peter is having this internal struggle about interacting with the Gentiles. You remember, and he's invited to go eat, and he's he's thinking, ah, I can't eat because it's dirty, it's unclean. And then he receives the vision, right, and the blanket comes down three times, and behold, you know, kill and eat is what he's given. But then after all of that, he's corrected, and and you know he understands now the true nature of the cross he understands the true nature of grace and that it's not just uh Jesus plus you know the Judaism that I know it's not just Jesus plus anything else it's just Jesus but he says he says something interesting here God shows no partiality but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him so there's this freedom here right you don't have to be part of the the nation of Israel you don't have to be part of anything except the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is spread out all over. It's not just here. It's not people that, just people that think like you. It's not people that do things just the same way as you. It's the entire body of Christ and the freedom there. So, interesting thing, Grace. Let's look at peace. So he said grace to you when we've unpacked, all that comes with that, this kindness, this mercy, this unmerited favor, this this freedom from having to be anything except in him. Now what about peace? Peace is a huge theological topic, right? So again, Paul's saying this one word, peace, right? And you read it and you you go on because you want to get to the rest of the letter, but you're missing out on what Paul truly meant, and you're missing out on what the original hearers would have understood. So, of course, God is a God of peace. We see that in Romans and 2 Corinthians. We see that in Hebrews. But peace is also a communicable attribute, meaning we share it with him, right? It's something that he shares with us as opposed to an incommunicable attribute. But it's something that he shares with us. So we are capable of expressing and and knowing peace. Peace is different than happiness, Peace is different than joy. Peace is different than, uh, you know, a, a settling of your soul. It's different, right? You can have a peace about something that's entirely wrong. You know, we say that, oh, I've got a peace about it. No, that just means you've probably stopped thinking about it, right? Um, sometimes. Sorry, if I haven't offended you yet, give me a time, I'll get there. Um, <laughs> But peace comes via salvation, so Christ brings it to us. And because of this peace, that's how we come by joy. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is an emotion, and emotions are fleeting. Happiness is dependent on, on the way the wind blows. You know, it's, it's overcast today. I'm not happy about that, right? But if you had to be working outside all day, you'd be happy that it was overcast, right? So happiness is not a thing to be chased after. That's the problem we get into as a people. We chase happiness, we chase things that make us feel good or right or, or settled, right? It makes us not feel sad, basically. We're chasing not feeling sad and bad about things all the time, but that's not necessarily joy. Joy can bring happiness, but it's not the same thing. Joy comes from the Lord, and we get that through peace. Um, Peace is a common term used in greetings, especially in, in the uh, Jewish world. They would say, you know, shalom, right? Now I, you guys have heard shalom, okay? You actually be like, shalom, um, but <laughs> that's no fun. Um, but so, but what, is, what does this mean? What does this peace mean, right? What does this shalom mean? Well, you, you might have heard in Bible studies, you might have read in books, you know, that you should have a shalom type of peace, well, there's actually meaning behind that. Go figure. Um, it is, it's completeness. It's wholeness. It's, it's a kind of prosperity that can only come from peace. Now, this is not health and wealth. This is not, you know, if you're truly happy enough, you know, then you'll be happy enough, which is whatever. But no, it's, it's this kind of prosperity that comes out of a relationship with God, an internal relationship with Christ. So that's it's the completeness and this wholeness. So again, just early on, we see this idea of grace, and now Paul is saying this in this way, this, this complete wholeness. I wish you this complete wholeness. I hope that I find you in good spirits. I hope that this letter finds you well. But he doesn't just say that. He articulates that in these, in these two words, right? This is so great. I, I really hope you're, you're seeing this, and I hope this gives you cause to go read more and study. We receive God's gifts of righteousness uh, through the Spirit, right? Peace, joy, hope, love. Um, But we also have a hope of glory. Uh, this, this, This thinking of it's not just the situation I find myself in now, right? You could be Joseph of Arimathea, and you're doing quite well, and you have no real need or want in the world. You could be dead broke. And you could have all kinds of needs and wants. And you are fully reliant on God for every breath that you take. By the way, the other guy is too. He just doesn't necessarily know it. But here's the point. There is a hope of glory. The end, right? Whenever you get to the end, whenever your race is done, whether you get there now, whether you get there 10 years from now, or whether somebody you know was there 10 years ago, is the same. The end goal is Christ. He is the prize he is the reward. It's not heaven. It's not, this, it's not just this eternal life, but it's who the eternal life is with and who it's through. That is the prize. It's the chance to be reunited with God as a people where we were separated, right? And so now we have this communion with Christ and we have scripture and God speaks to us through it and we pray and we live and we work through him but we will get to see him face to face. We will have that true fellowship with him. And that's the hope of glory. It's not just the hope of a good outcome for my situation. Right? I mean, everybody wants a good outcome for their situation, and it's not wrong to want that. But so what if it doesn't? I, had a <laughs> I, used, to <laughs> I used to have a, a pastor friend tell me all the time, and he used to make me mad. He's like, what's the worst that can happen? You die? I'm like, yeah, that's pretty bad. Um, but, you know, what he was kind of saying in a pithy way and, and, you know, what he was trying to get me to understand in my, my stubborn youthfulness, um, is he was just reminding me of, you know, what Paul said is, you know, to die is gain, to be with Christ is gain. That's the prize. So yeah, if I die, well, oh well, but I'm with Christ then, right? Right? which sounds really, it's kind of morbid and kind of harsh, but think about that. What's the worst that could happen? So there's that hope of glory. The gospel is a message of peace itself. And if we think about that, the gospel is probably one of the most controversial messages in all of history. The Bible, one of the most controversial books in all of history. By the way, the Bible's... uh, been the number one bestseller on the New York Times list since anybody can remember. They don't even count it anymore. They just don't. Um, but still, one of the most controversial books in all of history. Why? Why is this message of peace hated by so many? Well, it's simple. The gospel is a blessing to a believer, but it's a stumbling block to a non-believer. You can't read the gospel and not look at yourself in the mirror. You have to be confronted by your sins, by your life, by your deeds, by your actions, by your thoughts, your everything. There's no part of Scripture that doesn't cut into you. And as a believer, this is joyful to us. It reveals into us how we can commune better, how we can be closer with God, how we can worship more rightly. But if you don't believe in Christ, if you are a non believer, if scripture is an offense to you, it's because it shows you who you are. And it's not that you as a person are any different than anybody else. You just not acknowledged your sin. That's it. I'm a sinner. I can't read this thing without going, oh man. Because it reveals who I am, right? It reveals how different I am from a holy God but then it gives me the opportunity to reconcile through Christ with him. That's the joy, right? There's no happiness in knowing I'm a sinner, but there is is joy and there is happiness in knowing that Christ died for me, right? That's where it comes from. It's not dependent on myself or what I can do for myself. Think of it that way. Joy comes from the Lord, but happiness, for the most part, is something dependent on you. Right? What can you do to better your situation? Or what dumb luck can occur that would make me feel happy or better about whatever situation I'm in? Right? Think about it that way. Of all the gifts we receive as a believer, these come from the indwelling of the Spirit. It comes from not something that you've done, not a prayer that you say, but these gifts come from the Spirit. And these gifts are meant to bless you and to bless the body. Christians act on the prompting of God. The Holy Spirit prompts you to do and to say. I mean, given, given my own <laughs> proclivities, I, I don't do and say the right thing. And I know you're the same way, right? It's not in me to want to do things that don't benefit me. But this is called selflessness. And this is what the prompting of the Spirit does. This is where you get the ability to do, quote, good things, is it comes from the Spirit. And the indwelling of this Spirit is what brings us peace. Again, not this this settled mind, not this calm mind. These are all side effects of peace, right? We're, We're looking at the symptoms, as it were, of the thing. But peace comes from Christ. There's a peace in knowing He is resurrected, that he is living, that he is active, that he sits at the throne and he is waiting for the time. There's peace in that. There's a settlement in that. Paul uses peace in his opening to signify the reader to look back on their reconciliation with God. Right? So all these things that we've talked about in these few minutes here, Paul is directing the readers to do that. This is something they would have understood. This concept of peace would have been a little more understood than we use it today, right? We think of the 60s and hippies, and we think of, you know, world peace, and we think of peace in all these different ways, except for where does actually peace come from? Does peace just come from all of us shutting our mouths and not arguing? In my house, that would be great. But there's more to it than that. It's it's a theological issue. It's an issue that comes from God. It involves exchanging something for something good, right? So in scripture, this idea of reconciliation, it's actually a financial, it's, in Greek, it's a financial term. It's related to finance. And it means exchange, reconcile, right? So what do you do with your checkbook at the end of every month? You reconcile your checkbook, right? You reconcile your bank accounts. You, you look and you do the math and you add up, right? or you move money from one place to another, you do what you have to do to make it all balance, And that's kind of sort of the idea here that reconciliation carries. So giving up something for something good. Doesn't necessarily have to be something good for something bad or something bad for something good. It's just giving up something for something else. But this is this idea of reconciliation. Paul goes on to heavily employ this concept in Colossians as we'll see in the coming weeks. Um, But what it shows here in this opening section is that Paul has already made up his mind about this letter. He's not just, you know, kind of this free-form thought just writing it out. And Timothy was very likely his, his, uh, his secretary here, as emuensis. Um, and you might read, by the way, that uh, Paul was maybe not the author of Colossians. This was never actually in question in the ancient world. They never doubted that Paul was the author. You might hear the term Pauline um sometimes we say it has a pauline sound to it or a pauline connotation which means that whoever wrote it not paul had been around paul enough that they kind of shared the same thoughts this certainly would have been the case with timothy but this is not the case paul actually wrote it timothy was the emuensis emuensis sometimes had a little bit of freedom right so paul would dictate in this case and timothy would write down but timothy may write down a certain word in a certain way so we know that again in greek um There's different ways to say different things, but what you need to understand here is that Paul is the author, and he has made up his mind on this letter. He has already established, he has already thought through what he wants to say to the people at Colossae, and he's starting off right here in this opening, in this greeting. He's establishing some solid theological foundations before he even goes in to what we would call the meat of the book. interesting here too, I said earlier that Paul uses grace and peace together. Um, As far as we know, this combination of words and the way that he uses them is unique in the ancient world. We've just not really seen any other use of it in the same way that he uses it, which I think is fascinating because Paul is taking these, these two theological chunks, if you will, and he's combining them. So he's already changed. He's using charis, right? He's using this idea of kindness and grace and peace. Grace and peace to you in our Father. So he's combining these to establish this new way of thinking. And that's what Christianity is. This is a new way of understanding God. It's not that God changed. It's that we've been given a new insight into him through Christ. Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. And so we're getting to see what this looks like. So grace and peace. God is not this angry, thundering, lightning bolt throwing God. No, he 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 offers grace and peace to us in Himself. He gives it of Himself, not just something he can give like an earthly king would. A king can can give you peace, which is you know a freedom from war and perhaps um, you know some modicum of. You know, financial independence or financial prosperity. A king can give these things, and a king can even be merciful, but he cannot give it of himself. He has no control over it. He has some control over things, but he cannot give grace and peace in and of himself. And that's what Paul is saying here, that God gives it of himself. When thinking of a peaceful personality, uh, we have to think of gentleness and humility, right? So what does a peaceful person look like? Think about that. Gentleness and humility are probably among the least practiced virtues among believers today, right? So turn on the news, get on the internet, get on social media, and you're going to see any number of uh, groups, hate groups, hate groups calling other groups hate groups, love groups that are actually hating groups. I mean, and it's crazy, right? There's, There's wars and there's rumors of wars. But what is the Christian doing? Are we just sitting by the sideline, saying nothing? I mean, because man, I don't even know what, I'm just not saying anything because everything is offensive to anybody and I'm just gonna keep my mouth shut, right? And that's where we sit today. But I think too, this harshness in the world, this, this idea that everybody has to be right about something, that you have to have the upper hand, that you have to sit at the top of the philosophical debate about things, that everybody knows the answers, Right? Everybody has an answer for something, and my way is the right way. As believers, we're not expressing gentleness and humility. We're becoming hardened by the culture. Right? We're forced to constantly defend Christianity. And instead of becoming more humble, we find ourselves being frustrated and angry that this used to be a Christian nation. No, it didn't. People were just more reserved. People get frustrated. It was different, you know, back in my day. It was this way, maybe, but it's not anymore. America will never be the way it was in the 1950s Coca Cola commercial. It's not going there again. So, what are you going to do as a believer? You're going to continue to be hardened? You're going to continue to fight when you ought to love? You're going to continue to want to debate and win arguments? when you ought to just submit and be humble. There are times, certainly, to, to argue, and there are times to discuss. But there are also times just to shut your mouth and love and hug. If we boast in the cross, what right do we have to be indignant towards a sinful world? Why are we expecting a sinful world to behave in our own image? Why do we expect a group of young people who are frustrated because they know they're not going to be able to get jobs? Why are we expecting them to behave any differently than anyone else? Why are we expecting, you know, a group of older people to, you know, love (laughs) any other group that's doing things differently than the way they're used to or the way they want to? Everybody has ideas. We're seeing a a rapid a rapid change in culture, faster than any time we've ever seen in the history of written language. Culture is changing fast. And we have a choice to be hardened by it, or we have a choice to love through it. We have to acknowledge that sin is present. That's what we are as believers. We have to. The church stands in opposition to a sinful world, but not in opposition to the people. You can't choose who you're going to love. You can't choose who you're going to be gentle and kind to. It is to all because Christ was gentle to you even in your own sin. While we were still yet sinners, Christ loved us. Before the beginning of time, before before creation itself, right? The crucifixion, the cross was not plan B. It was known before God took his own hands and formed Adam and breathed life into him. He knew this thing's going to kill me. And it wasn't because he just saw it, because it was planned. It was this mercy and this grace way ahead of time. This is the type of grace and peace that we have to have in ourselves and we have to express to the world. Sinners are going to sin and they're going to behave that way you be a Christian be a little Christ love continually and with that comes this idea of not wanting to increase our own status again it's really easy to wanna be on the top of that argument I mean, look, who doesn't like walking away having like, yeah, did that? You see that? I pulled out that verse, nailed it. He couldn't even answer me, right? Or I pulled out this piece of history, and I showed him, yeah, okay, (laughs) right? But I mean, in your experience, and maybe it's different, right? In my experience, no one's ever come to Christ because they lost an argument, no one's ever felt loved and okay because they lost an argument. There is a time for teaching and correction, and there is a time for rebuking. But those are few and far between of the times of loving and grace. I mean, And it sounds even silly up here saying it. Because like, I don't even think we have a, we have a concept of what it, what it means to love that much. Right? Are we so peaceful in and of ourselves? Are we so resolute in our love for Christ that we know what it means to love that much? I mean, like, what are you, some kind of hippie? Maybe. Right, they loved. Mostly each other, but they loved. And so we have to get to the point where we're, we're less concerned with being right than we are with loving And this is the gospel, right? Because if you don't have the opportunity to love somebody, no one's going to sit and listen to you. Nobody wants to hear about your God that doesn't love. Where's your God now? Oh, he's not loving. And this, this goes with the idea of, you know, your character and your witness. So, less time trying to win, less time trying to be right. Be peaceful in yourself and love. Love, love, love. Now, that's not to say that people can't be... Uh, they can't know, how do I say this? It's like a double like not, not. You can know love. You can know happiness. You can even know joy. And you can receive blessings from the Holy Spirit without being a believer. This is called common grace, right? This is the goodness of God as it exists in creation. And if you think things are bad now, imagine if God were to lift his hand off. However, bad things are now, imagine God lifting his hand away and taking that reservation off. You know, when people can say things like, well, you know, most people are good, they're inherently good, they don't realize it, but what they're saying is most people experience a common grace and have this common idea of love. May not be fully right, that's not fully wrong either. There's this idea that you can experience some of the goodness of God apart from the Holy Spirit. And that's, again, common grace. And that's okay. This is some of the things that we get to experience in the world. The the cool weather, common grace. A kindness that we show towards each other, a general courtesy, common grace. So it's there. And people will respond to it. If you respond to common grace in somebody with an uncommon grace, with an uncommon love. Imagine the conversations you could have, right? And it's really easy to go from that conversation and then to step right into the gospel. People will respond to love. People will respond to hate, too. We see it all over, all over. I actually, I, I, I was in Boston a few weeks ago, uh, two or three weeks ago, um, and there was a big in Boston Common, which is like the big, it's a big park in the center of the city. Um, they had it blocked off because these big protests were going to be going on. And basically all these groups came to protest each other. <laughs> it's, it, was, it was strange, but I mean, they had like 500 police officers down there. And, and all because they knew that when this small group comes and this small group comes this other group is going to come and they're all just going to hate on each other right but they're really but but all of them think right that they have the right idea that they're that they're loving in the best way possible but imagine if you know somebody from each one of those like came out and just like man I'm sorry and they hugged each other and said like can we just talk about this like could you imagine that right i mean that wouldn't make the news right but <clears throat> That's, that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. But we lean towards the other, right? We have this guttural instinct to just be right and to win. And it's not love. It's not who we are as believers. That's not who we should be. That's not who we should strive to be. Ours is Christ. Christ did not win arguments when he was right. He stood before Pilate and kept his mouth shut. He stayed on the cross when he didn't need to. Now, of course, doctrinally, we know he needed to, but go with me. He does things out of love and admiration and glory to his Father. We do things out of love and admiration and glory to him. Change the way you link. Peace comes from God alone, so we're prone to wars and violence. James tells us this, that it's, it's our tendency, it's, it's our want, right? Deep down, you say, well, I'm, I'm not a violent person, and I'm not a warring man. Yeah, you yeah, kind of are, right? You just, you're not acknowledging to which bent it is. All of us want to be right, and given the opportunity, would probably be prone to some kind of, of you know, violence or uh, maybe not even physical, just verbal, right? This this idea that, you know, the sharp tongue, you just say things that just cut and that just hurt. We're prone to this. It's because we have no goodness in and of ourselves. These are the times when we're telling the Holy Spirit, you hush, I'm going to work this out. And then you go and you do the thing, and it probably ends up poorly. And then you have to go and you confess to your brother or to your sister or to your children even, hey, I'm a jerk, um, and I sinned against you. Yeah, have you, ever, have you ever had to repent to your child? That's humbling, right? And if you haven't, do it, because um, you probably owe it. But that's very humbling to have to go, now listen. What I did was wrong, and here's why. And here's why it was offensive not only to you, but to God. And here's what I'm going to do to fix it. And would you pray with me just in this moment here? Like, that's something awesome. But do that with, with, your, with your family and with your friends and with other people. My goodness. And, and, and I confess to you, I am the type of person, I have a very sharp tongue, and I start talking fast, and I start using these $12 words when I get upset. Um just to shut people down. That's, that's mine. I'm, I'm bent this way. But in, in, in researching this and just, in just reading through and thinking, I was like, my goodness, what if I just shut up and gave a hug instead of talking? I mean, what if we just all just shut up and gave hugs instead of talking, right? We talk about, you know, give a hug, don't throw a punch, but just maybe just shut up. Right? In the times that you, you feel you need to be right, just maybe don't be. Maybe just love instead. What's that look like? When we act peaceably, we reflect God's character. God is peace. It's it, you know, we say God is love, and that flows off the tongue, but God is peace. He is peace. He isn't peaceful. Because he does peaceful things, he, is, he does peaceful things because he is peace. It, it comes from him. It is the source of peace. And when we act peaceably, when we set ourselves aside, even though we might be right, and we choose instead to act in love, to act in peace, and to express a joy that can only come from that, we reflect his character, and that, of course, brings him glory. That honors him. In the same way that, and, and, and you know, sometimes you kind of you know, glance sideways or your kids don't know, you're, you're watching, you're listening, but they do something and you're like, my goodness, they listen, they got it. Hey, did you see that? They got it, right? And of course, once they see you, they punch each other and, and it's over. But it's kind of similar. It's kind of similar. When we act with peace, when we, when, we, when we express this, we glorify God. And that's what Paul wants us to see here. He's saying, you have this ability in you as believers. You have access to this, to this peace and to this grace. So use it. I'm, I'm, I'm blessing you with this. I'm saying, I want you to have this and I too have this and we share in this. But right there, all right, I actually am getting close to overtime, so I'm gonna wrap up. Um, so again, we have some deep theological issues here in the remainder of Colossians, but I wanted you to see in this opening, and I hope it encourages you too, when you're looking at the openings and the opening greetings of letters, any letter, any letter in the New Testament, don't skip over that part, right? There are things to unpack there. And, and I know some of you, because I can see you, right? You all, you know, I can see you. You're like, how in the world did he get, like, a 30-minute sermon out of two words. But here's the point. It's there for us. It's there for us to go and to read, to take up and read. It's there to be unpacked. This is Scripture. It's not just like the, the precursor to Scripture, right, because everything really starts in the next verses. No, no. This is Scripture. So what's there for us to unpack? Um, it's a very elementary verse. You know, it's, it's something that is, it was maybe said um, sort of in passing, right? To Paul, this is all wrote. This, this is all part of who he is. But the readers would have understood these concepts to a greater extent than we do today. So I hope you understand it a little bit better today. Peace and grace sound like they might be kind of cute things. You put on your Bible covers or, you know, what's it, what's it called? The cross-stitch? Is that what it is? Cross-stitching? Um, I feel like we have like an aversion to cross stitching in this church. Like, I'm old. <laughs> like, um, stop cross stitching. But no. So they sound like kind of cutesy things, right? You know, grace and peace. And, and, and they sound things kind of like what weak people would say. Yes, it's okay. I am willing to be weak in Christ, I'm willing to look like weakness to the world. Are you? Do you want to be the winner all the time? Or do you want to honor Christ all the time? There's a time for both. There's a time to be the winner. And there's a time to stand up and do the right thing. But it's not always. And I think those times are fewer and far between than we think. It's our flesh that wants to win all the time. It's our flesh that wants to be on top all the time. And it's our flesh is the very thing we need to work on denying. Funny how that works. So don't, don't consider them kind of these, these nice things. So when, you, when someone says, you know, God has showed grace through Christ, look back on this and think about what grace means. When someone says, you have peace in Christ, look back on this and understand the deeper meaning. Paul is certainly going to cover so many interesting things in Colossians. It's going to be magnificent. Please, please come back for those. But just here, in this opening thing, we have deep, deep truths. So I encourage you, uh, actually, you could read through Colossians in a sitting. Um, So maybe over the next, you know, several weeks while we work through this, maybe read it a couple times a week. You know, in your quiet time, in your devotions, when you're sitting down, just read through Colossians and understand it even more. All right, pray with me.